Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 47. We have just a fantastic interview for you today. Uh, I am going to be joined here in just a moment by the great Chris McHugh, uh, who has played on albums um, totaling sales north of 150 million units sold. Um, The guy is just everywhere. We'll go through a little uh, list of his credits here in just a second, but we were just thrilled to be joined by Chris. Uh, So please stay tuned after this message from Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Lost Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Lost Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Lost Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody, as I mentioned, going to be joined by Chris McHugh here in just a moment. And I just want to say that um, Chris has just played on so many records. Just a partial list of his credits are Amy Grant, Faith Hill, Billy Ray Cyrus, Toby Keith, Little Big Town, Rascal Flats, Blake Shelton, Lionel Richie, Carrie Underwood, The Doobie Brothers, Leanne Rimes, Jewel, Brantley Gilbert, and um, he spent a lot of years doing all the records for Keith Urban and also toured with Keith uh, for, for many years as Keith Urban's musical director. Now, you would think, you know, playing on all these great folks albums that Chris would have a bit of an ego. He sold over 150 million records. Not so. Just one of the most down-to-earth, great guys. And we had a wonderful discussion about his career in the business and his approach to playing. And I think you might be surprised. Uh, I asked him what some of his favorite 
records were that he played on. And you might be surprised by his answer, uh, but he has really no ego. And we had just a great conversation. And he truly is one of the modern day greats. You hear his playing anytime you turn on a radio. I can almost guarantee it. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the fantastic Chris McHugh. Hey, good afternoon, Chris. How's it going today? It's going well, man. Good to hear from you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on the drum shuffle. We really appreciate your time. No worries. No worries. Awesome. Well, Chris, you know, I, I have jokingly said to you, it may be quicker to to just say who you haven't recorded with in your career, um, <laughs> but <laughs> we we typically try to start at the beginning um, you know, did I read someplace that you're a New Jersey native? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up, um, in, um, a little town called, uh, Oakland, New Jersey, which is, um, you know, a small borough in Camden County, right. Um, right by Camden. And often a lot of people are, um, you know, will be like, Oh, I know Cherry Hill. Cherry Hill is kind of close. It's literally like right across the, um, the, you know, um, Ben Franklin bridge or actually the Walt Whitman bridge from Philly. Okay. And yeah. So, you know, little small Jersey town, South Jersey and, and, um, you know, a lot of, um, got to, experience a lot of great live music um just you know by going to going into philly you know saw a ton of shows at the tower theater uh in philly and then obviously spectrum and um but the first concert that i ever went to uh you know like legitimate like concert concert was at jfk stadium um and it was uh, it was in 1976, and it was yes, Peter Frampton and Gary Wright, and I was 12, and uh, so it certainly had an impact on me. But I'll also say too, you know, um, Philadelphia, which I spent a ton of time in um, growing up, just had so many amazing, um, just so much diversity in terms of music. Um, and, um, you know, a, a, a pretty great jazz scene and, you know, very eclectic, uh, and, and ethnic music too, you know? And so, um, you know, it was, it was a, a really, um, musically inspirational place to grow up, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a great scene, you know, and there's that, you know, I guess for, younger bands there's kind of that great loop you know south jersey philly and then if you can get over to the you know atlantic city you know there's that yeah. kind of loop that all the bands kind of play so i i would imagine it was cool growing up there it's kind of fer fertile ground for a for a young drummer totally totally and and um yeah i mean you know it was it was, it was a place that it was easy to assume um, that if you're going to do this, you better be really good at it. Like um, <laughs> right on. Yeah, you know, because there. What's interesting is that there are, and not to say that um, 
I think that every musician, you know, that, that goes on to having a professional career has a few of those key moments of like, oh, that's what it takes, you know, and, and it's sort of those defining moments of like where you, you sort of double down on your craft at that point, you know, you realize, um, holy crap, that's, that's what the average player sounds like. You know, I better get it together. <laughs> no, he, yeah, I mean, it seems like I have that moment just about every Saturday night. Um, so. Well, <laughs> but you know what? Though? That's actually, you know, that's a good moment to have. I mean, it as long as you know you don't cross into the well, screw this, I'm just going to give up thing. You know, yeah. It, I think it should be inspiring, and it and it can be humbling, but not not to the point of, of where, you know, you are just like, well, forget it. You know, I've got nothing to say. I'm not going to do this anymore. And it's not fun. And, you know, I mean, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to come across those moments. I mean, unless, you know, it, it really is time to stop playing. But I believe though, that I think you, I think you can have, an amazing lifetime of playing drums and it it doesn't have to fall under the, your profession, you know? I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing about it is that there's plenty of uh, music to be made. Um, just, you know, now, man, you can, you know, with, with, uh, with the way that, uh, you know, a lot of the electric kits are, um, it's really possible for, for people to play, you know, in an apartment or whatever and not necessarily have to be in a band. But, you know, my point to all of this is, is that drumming is just, um, it's, it's a, it's a great, at the very least, it's a great stress reliever, but, um, you know, it really, it's, it's a, it's a great expression too. And it's a way to just kind of like, um, you know, um, I don't know, like, like it's, for me, it's always been the glue of like, you know, whenever, um, whatever life has presented itself as, you know, hard times, good times, whatever. Um, it's literally, you know, drumming that has kind of kept me through it. And I don't mean that like, uh, like meaning that it has to be like some great record or a great tour. I'm not talking about the little moments of like just picking up my practice pad and, and, you know, kind of reconnecting in that way. It's sort of like a security blanket in a way. And so my point to all of this is that I think it's great to be encouraged, you know, or a little shocked, but like, Oh man, you know, at a, at a certain player or inspired, but it still doesn't mean, you know, it's not the thing that you have to be at a certain level to do. I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that you do progress in little increments as well, as long as you keep playing, you know. Well, absolutely. I mean, I you know, and I hear from folks all the time that say, you know, I'm not uh, I wish I could do what you do. Um, I'm not coordinated enough to do it. And, and, you know, these are sometimes people in their 50s even, you know, and mm-hmm. I've never picked up a drumstick. And I always say, well, look, you know, when you were born, you weren't coordinated enough to walk. It's something that yeah. you that you taught yourself to do. And, you know, it's never too late to pick up an instrument. I mean, I think music is such a you know, universal language that, uh, you know, I always encourage everybody, look, if you want to be a guitarist, buy a guitar, 
You know, I mean, if yeah. you <laughs> if you want to be a drummer, yeah, like don't, yeah, yeah, don't, don't, you know, don't sell your car to get it. But I mean, you know, like there is a way to to just, uh, and that was, you know, the the beautiful thing about um, growing up in the time that I did. You know, we, um, you know, taking band or being in choir was a requirement, and um, you know, it really did um, help lead me down the path of of. Uh, being a musician, you know, but also too to appreciate the art form in itself and, you know, anything from, you know, being exposed to music that I would never have been exposed to without those, uh, without that course in, in school, you know? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, just the, um, I think art in general, you know, I mean, obviously it is, is what, um, connects us, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's it's a reminder. Certainly, drums of the most basic tribal level is the fact that you know we're all really connected. Everybody responds to rhythm. I mean, even people who can't dance, you know. Um, and so that that's that's the beauty of, of of playing drums as well. And if you wind up playing another instrument, it never hurts to have a little a little time, you know. Uh, trying out playing drums because I mean it, it gives you such a sense of of just um, you know pocket and feel and space between the notes length of notes and you know it's um, most of my friends that are great guitar players or keyboard players can sit down behind a kit and play a pretty convincing you know two and four kind of uh, you know simple rock beat only because they know what it's supposed to sound like, you know, like they, they've been around enough and they know their instrument enough to know that when something feels good and they're playing along to it, it's like, okay, at least it should be like that, you know? And, um, so it's a, it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. And I, I tell people that who are, you know, sort of afraid of it or don't think that they can do it. I, I always say it's really just like driving a stick shift. You know, it's, it, it, if you can, if you can, uh, you know, put a clutch down and use your brake and your accelerated pedal, you have one hand on the left wheel and you're shifting with the right hand, then by all means, you can play drums. It's just a matter of, you know, it's that same moment of like when you're first learning to drive a stick and you grind some gears and bit, you, you get into the flow of it, you know. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, nobody's yeah. born with perfect, uh, you know, four-way independence, you know. I mean, it's something no, it's. No something that you just have to work on. And, you know, I mean, I think that kind of segues, you know, into, I'm really curious, you know, I know that, that you grew up studying the instrument and, you know, you really kind of came on the scene, dare I say in the mid to late eighties, um, you know, you were doing work with, uh, and I hope I don't get this wrong, but was it the, the white hearts? Is that right? Yeah, so I was in uh, the band Whiteheart from like 85 to 90, and um, during the course of that time, I was doing sessions as well, and, um, you know, as, you know, so I moved to Nashville in 85, to I had auditioned for that group, and um, got that gig and moved to Nashville when I was 20, um, and so it... A couple of the guys in the band were producers um, who produced other artists. And so I'd done a little bit of studio work in, in Philly, nothing really to, to even 
you know, mentioned, but enough that I enjoyed it. I thought, man, this is something I would love to do more of. I think, you know, I think I have the, um, you know, the, the talent and the mental, mental capacity to sort of, you know, get into this, you know, and, and I, I really enjoyed the differences in rather than, I mean, I've, you know, I have a problem being in a band or anything, but I really liked, you know, the, the session side of things of it being different and being with different people and, you know, different situations. And, um, I've really grown to, to love that. Um, you know, the, the, just the variety, but yeah, so it was, you know, um, sort of the back end of the, of the eighties, I was kind of getting on sort of larger projects and stuff and I played on, um, the, the Amy Grant record, um, Heart in Motion, which was like her big crossover record and, um, played on that and I toured, did, did a few tours with her, um, as well as, um, uh, Christian artist named Michael W. Smith and, um, and then, you know, the, the session stuff just started to grow from that point on, you know, through, through the nineties and, and, um, and then I would say, you know, probably around the, the mid nineties or so is when it really became like a, a very, um, you know, <laughs> it's funny. My dad, you know, would, would always, uh, he was a career railroad guy and, and, you know, even that far into my career, my, my dad would be like, well, you know, I could always still get you a job at the railroad. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I understand, you know, once I became a dad, I'm like, oh, I get it. He, he, he Hey man, like, get a know, real job. Get a real Dr- job. Well, with a pension and whatnot. And, you know, <laughs> I get it. But, uh, but you know, so it, it, it was really, you know, the end of the nineties that it was kind of like, you know, this is, this is really, um, you know, I don't know what's the right term. I, I guess, um, that it, uh, you know, I was able to, to string, a, a real, um, a real career together, if you will. And, um, and it's kind of been the same since, you know, um, and, um, but yeah, so I would agree with that statement, you know, it was uh, kind of initially in, in the mid eighties and then sort of by the, the mid to late nineties was, um, I feel like more of an impact kind of thing, but I don't know. I mean, I was always working during that time, I guess, I guess around, you know, the time that I'm talking about, it seemed to be a bit more, I don't know, real, maybe it's a, it's a right word. I don't know. <laughs> And I agree. And I think that, you know, the time that you got to Nashville, there was kind of uh, and I don't want to overstate it, but there was a little bit of a changing of the guard happening at that time. You know, I mean, it, it was I think prior to the late 80s, it was all, you know, Larry London, Hal Blaine, you know, those guys were getting the lion's share of the work. And you know, all of a sudden you're in town, you know, Shannon Forrest started, you know, getting some stuff going on. Um, and, and country music kind of changed at, at that point as well. 
And so, I mean, I think that probably lent a little bit to you getting real busy on, on some of this, uh, on some of these sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Stylistically, you know, um, things were, it's interesting, you know, both, uh, you know, like myself, Greg Morrow, Shannon Forrest, you know, um, Chad Cromwell too. None of us, um, nobody changed how they played. You know, those are, those are, you know, the the four of us are basically rock players and, you know, um, kind of come up things a bit more aggressively. And then the music is what, is what shifted, you know, and, and, uh, you know, yeah, if you're doing something that's more traditional feeling, um, then yeah, you have to adhere to those principles. But even that, you know, the attitude in general of it being a bit more, uh, I would say, you know, where the intent was much more, you know, kind of in your face, even if you're playing brushes or something like that, it was, it was more the consistency of time and, and, um, and just sort of, uh, power in terms of, uh, you know, two and four type mentality that it, it would be allowed to have the same type of energy, um, you know, that was going on in more of a, a, a rock or a pop record, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it changed quite a bit in that way. And, and um, you know, I always loved um, and still do, I mean, um, augmenting with program or, or, or playing with loops or any of that kind of stuff. And as the industry even changed to be more accepting on that level, you know, uh, which is that that's the first that was my first entrance with working with, with Keith Urban, his first solo record, um, a, um, a great piano player, session player, producer named Matt Rawlings was doing that record. And um, we had done a few records together that were not country. And Matt called me for that. And specifically, you know, on the front end of tracking, we were, we were doing uh two or three days of uh, pre-program, uh, pre-production on it, which was basically, you know, I was programming. And um, so, you know, I loved, uh, that was just great to me. I didn't really, it didn't bother me or, or I didn't even think twice, you know, that the stuff had banjo or fiddle or anything. It's, I, I don't, I still don't really, um, I don't look at the genres any different at all. I mean, I'm aware of what rules you can break, you know, but yeah. in terms of the intensity of what I'm trying to do is, is basically to um, take the song where I think it should go. And, but also, you know, to be, um, to be malleable during, during the process, like if the producer or the artist is not happy with that, you know, you got to be able to shift gears. And, um, and so um, point to all of this is, I think you can, I think you can have, um, sort of a, a very specific nature to what you do as a musician and your character in that. You can really have that as long as you're aware that, um, you know, that this is a service industry and ultimately, you know, your job is to, um, help the artist and the producer, uh, achieve the goal that they are trying to achieve. And sometimes 
they are literally, that's wide open. It's like, okay, you, you know, give me your interpretation and, and we'll, we'll let you know, you know, if that, if that flies. And, um, and it's not really that, you know, it's, it's not really all that wild. Like even in the most interesting interpretations of someone's song, everything is to a degree has been done before. Uh, and I don't mean that as a downer. I mean it as it's like, um, you, cause inside of that, you know, it's, it's, it's like the limited, uh, you know, we're, we're playing mostly four, four. And so it's like, you know, well, what are you going to do? It's really about offering, um, some, some variety for the section, you know, and to make the intro feel like an intro and the verse feel like a verse for it to build throughout the B section of the verse and then into the chorus and to you sort of carry that theme on through the, you know, the reintro and, and then typically, you know, the second verse is going to have a little bit more energy um, than the first. And then you've got to launch that into the next chorus. And, and then, you know, you, you usually have a solo and, you know, a bridge or something, but it's, it's learning the composition of that. And, and knowing that if you start with, you know, one particular pattern, it's got to build on itself, or, or I think it should, and I think it should be hooky. I think it should be, you know, reminiscent of the section before it and that it should make sense in, in the composition of the song overall. And, and most important that it, it feels good and it feels appropriate for what the lyric is, is talking about too. And so whether that's done with programming or loops or just all playing on the floor, you know, that's part of what um, I find the most interesting about, you know, doing sessions is it's, um, you know, having the opportunity to do that is, is a, uh, is, is, you know, something I'm really grateful for, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the word formula, but there's a reason why great recordings are great recordings. You know, I mean, and I'm guessing you don't get to go in and just go Keith Moon or, or Mitch Mitchell on very many sessions, right? I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, there be, there, it's funny though, is that those are two really good references for certain sections though, because like there'll be times that I'm doing something that might be for TV or movie. Um, and those references can be thrown out because there is a very, very particular type of energy to both of those players that you're talking about. Right. You know, and, and what's funny is, is that even when you're not talking specific, you know, notation or something, you're just overall talking about an energy. Those are really great. Um, not just, you know, sonically, but visually as well. And, and the franticness of it, because, you know, we, we do have a tendency, or I should say I have a tendency, you know, um, I really do love very clean, precise playing, um, but I'm also a huge fan of that kind of like anarchy playing as well, too. But, you know, man, I mean, gosh, I, I could probably say that not, not two weeks ago, you know, someone made a reference of uh, maybe the last two bars of a bridge or something or a solo 
you know, that they should have that kind of Keith Moon wildness coming out of it, you know. And, um, you know, or, or like, <laughs> you know, or like when Animal on the Muppets plays the drums. But, it's, <laughs> but it is that, you know, that sort of just uh, unpredictable kind of flourish. Um, you know, it. I, I think to, to maybe to um, to answer the question is like, yeah, occasionally there are those moments, and it's really great to have that um, knowledge, you know, as a player of like what that is, um, because it there's nothing like it, you know. There's there's really nothing like the way that um, you know Mitch or Keith Moon played. Um, and some of those records have become so much of like a normal everyday occurrence. Like at this point, you know, with, you know, the, like the who stuff is used on TV shows and, yeah. but the repetition, like how many decades those songs have been played, how much they are a part of like the normal, um, you know, like what people have heard. Yeah, it's it's definitely part of the lexicon now. There's no doubt Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally, totally. I mean, it 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 would be like, you know, yeah, it'd be like not knowing the record kind of blues. You know, La Miles Davis. I mean, it's just sort of like, even if you don't like jazz music, yeah, you really need to know that record. Number one, because it's an amazing record, and number two, it's the most sort of. I think it still is most um you know widely sold or downloaded or whatever you know jazz record of all time but the point is is that you know it, it's it's just having a sense of like um it's really like learning the basic food groups you know you really should have an awareness <laughs> of it it's like um you know it's funny because it, it um I started to teach a little bit um, at the beginning of this year, and I'll probably do more of that next year. Um, you know, if I if I kind of allocate the time for it. But one thing I found really interesting is in talking with new players, you know, younger players, um, you know, some some kids that are like Belmont students uh, with Belmont, which is a school here in Nashville, and uh, you know, they're a lot of their, the same desires. I really would like to be a session player. And so, you know, we'll work on actual things behind the kid and stuff like that. But one of the things I'll give them is just homework on, you know, you know, I'll say to them like, well, um, do you, can you tell me why the, the, you know, the, um, vocabulary for ballads, is what it is. Like, why do they work and why are they the same? Why are these parts? Do you, and do you even know what they're based off of? And, you know, their references are so different than mine. Um, and for the most part, it, they, they, they're not aware of the root of these things. And so I'm like, okay, well, you really need to listen to Nigel Olson. And they're like, who's Nigel Olson? <laughs> and I'm like, Wow. But that just has to do with, you know, that's just generational differences. But when I sit down and play them, um, you know, if I'll, I'll play them like Rocket Man and I'll go, okay, before Nigel played this uh, and, and before 
Elton John, people did not approach ballads like this. Right. This is a language that was created, but here's all the places that it went, you know? And it, and it really, it, and even before that is, you know, you start with, um, you know, Nigel to me sort of continued the, you know, the type of playing that Ringo was doing on Abbey Road, you know? Yeah, yep. Um, and, um, you know, put a little bit more of a modern spin on it. And certainly the composition was much more orchestrated in terms of what he would play when. And you're talking about someone, you know, if you play with an artist that has that many ballads the way that Elton John does, well, you better have, you know, some great intuition. But you also, you know, you really have to need to have some, like, an interesting, you know, imagination, too. And, and all the while, these are pop songs. So you can't really, you know... Don't screw with the dancers, you know. I mean, just, <laughs> people are going to slow dance to this, so don't, you know, don't don't do anything too wild on that end as well, um, you know. And then, of course, uh, you know, along the same lines is a lot of them, um, you know, they're just unaware of um, it's, you know, even when you start breaking down like Roger Taylor's parts and Queen. Um, and, uh, so it's just been really, really fascinating, you know, to, to sort of re, you know, to help these, these younger players explore sort of the origins of these things, because a session player, like a, what it took to become somebody like, you know, Jeff or, or JR is it took an awareness of, of who came before them and then pushing the boundaries on what could be done next, you know? And Jeff was, um, to me and still is, is like, um, for me personally, uh, is one of the most like his ability to fit into any situation is pretty amazing. And still always sound like Jeff Carl. um, you know, but there's a lot of guys too, you know, that, that really, really influenced me, like Mickey Curry and a lot of people don't, don't know his playing. And, and I've even recently have been able to like hit people to, uh, to a lot of that. And it's pretty shocking, you know, for them to hear somebody play like that, that they never heard of, you know? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think most drummers know Mickey, you know, from his work with Brian Adams, of course, you know. But, a lot of, yeah, a lot of them don't, though. It's it, pretty amazing. But then you throw on like a record like Sonic Temple by The Cult and you go, yeah. this is Mickey. And you're like, wow, right. he's playing in a metal band. I mean, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's oh, insane. Uh, and plus he's one of the the most lovely people you ever meet too. It's a yeah. great guy. And, and, um, I'm glad to hear you know, that. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's awesome. Um, and just, uh, sonically too, you know, the, the, where he comes from, I think is just really amazing. And, and, um, you know, and, and a lot of guys are not aware of, of just, um, you know, they, they know of, um, you know, Ferroni from, Tom Petty, but, <laughs> oh, you man. know, there's, 
the, the stuff he did uh, in the 70s is phenomenal too, you know, and, and so in just playing people some of the, specifically some of the Chaka Khan tracks and, um, you know, it, I guess, you know, for me, I've always really loved the exploration side of, of like, what is out there? Who's doing what? Why do people like them? You know, why, you know, why are they? Um, and I think that that's that, you know, if you look at that, that time in, um, you know, the seventies of what was going on in LA and, and sort of the music that came out of that through, through the eighties, you know, which is what I would call the real, um, the kind of glory days of, of the, the session drummer, you know, the eighties in Los Angeles, um, you know, with Vinny and Jeff and, and JR and Carlos Vega, um, Russ Kunkel, yeah. you know, um, it, um, it, it was really, um, just the, the overall bar that was set at that time. And, and, you know, again, back to the statement of like, oh, that's what normal is, you know, yeah. like, you know, um, and sadly, you know, what we've lost in, in that, and there are a lot of great players now. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sound like the old guy thinking that everything was better in the past. I don't feel that way. But one thing that was different is, you know, you were really relying on what you could do on the floor. Now, yeah, shit, we, we, we punched in plenty of sections and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, but ultimately it was, it was the human that had to perform it. And it has some of the formality, uh, has gone away. And, um, you know, I miss some of that intensity, you know, I, I, I really like that. It, it, there was a certain amount of achievement that you felt when leaving a studio that, uh, you really don't get now, you know, when you do multiple playlists of songs and multiple passes and a lot of things are edited together. Um, and so even when you leave, you're like, I don't even know what that is or what it'll be like, you know? Right. Um, Have you but ever doesn't change? Yeah. It doesn't change what you do live, you know? So, right. Have you ever been surprised after you've done a session when you heard the final mix and went, wow, I don't remember it being like that <laughs> when I well, left. No. Uh, some of the stuff is so obviously hacked up and edited. It's like, I, I can't even listen to it, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, and I'm not knocking, you know, there's a certain, um, there's a certain level of um, rhythmic and sonic um, consistency that is the, the, it's the world we're living in, you know, and it, and it comes out of a program nature, but it also comes out of, you know, we're influenced by, um, you know, the, the DJ uh, sort of world, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the pop world, um, really seems to be working along that, you know, very, very, um, I don't want to say robotic, but it's, it's a, an inhuman consistency of, of what, um, you know, is expected 
Yeah. But there's always, always, always exceptions to the rule on that. And I think now, too, it's important to realize that, you know, the formats are, are so blurred at this point, and it's really about what kind of record you want to make. And, and I'll say, from that angle, there are some really great, um, there are some really great records being made, even ones that are not really human, you know? Um, the, I guess the point to all of this is, is I'm saying that there's always excellence, you know, um, if, if you look hard enough to find it. And when, and when we're lucky, you know, the most popular music is the most well-made. That's not always the case, but when that does happen, that's a, that's something to be celebrated. You know, that's, it's, it's a rarity. It would be great if we could expect it, but I guess, Maybe a good way to sum this whole thing up is to say we were really lucky that John Bonham was the drummer for Led Zeppelin because they could have <laughs> easily been that popular and the drummer sucked. Yeah. Um, and that goes for, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different bands, you know, it's like, um, we're really fortunate for that, certainly in the drumming community. And Bonham's a perfect example of somebody that, you know, he wasn't live uh, long enough to really have that much of an output, but we're still talking about what he did. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I mean, there used to be this great website and just in my, you know, I, I've been a drummer for 30 years and, you know, I've had a semi-professional career for probably 22 of those 30 years. Okay. And, and certainly not at the level you are, but there was this great website at one time. It was called In Search of the Click Track. I don't know if you ever saw it, but you could basically go into this website and pull any MP3 from your computer into it, and it would show you on a plot, you know, where the... the, the the rhythm of the song deviated from what they called the click track. And if oh, you, right. yeah, so it was awesome. So mm-hmm. if you looked at Ringo, Charlie Watts, John Bonham, if you looked at any of those guys, their time was completely malleable, their tempo, their pulse, completely yeah. malleable in the songs. And now when I go play a session, I know it's going to be snapped to the grid. I, you know, I'm playing with a click as you are, but even then, if you're ahead of the click behind the click, it's probably going to get snapped to the grid at the end of the day, just to make it easy for everybody in the box. So some of that has been lost over the years, I guess. Oh, sure. And I would say that rather than, um, you know, the choice on it is to, you could go, well, I'm not really going to work on, you know, my, my time as much. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just don't think that that's the answer. I mean, I still, even when I know, like if I'm playing with stuff that has a lot of programming on it, I know they're going to, they're going to lock it up. It doesn't matter how tight I play, but I still try to play as tight as I can. Well, it becomes um, nature to you. I mean, you. you well, yeah, it's just a part. It's so much ingrained into the front part of my career because, you know, for decades, 
you know, there wasn't a box that lined you up. And so, you know, you, you know, you were, <laughs> you had to do that. And so it's, it's, it's something that I put a lot of time into and something I've really prided myself in. And so I'm not going to now just go, well, screw it, you know, <laughs> right. but I, and I like to, you know, it, but, and, and people, regardless of what they do with it in post, people are very impressed still. They're like, holy shit, I didn't know anybody could play that tight. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not saying I'm not the only one who can do that. There are other guys in this town that can do it too. But the art form in itself of being able to do it is something that um, a lot of younger producers are really shocked by because they just assume that nobody can do it. Yeah. You know, and they, work, they might be working with a lot of young players um, you know, that haven't worked on it as much. But I'll say, too, you know, it's like the quality of that stuff is really down to the producer, you know, um, because there are plenty of, of records that are made now that, that are not made that way. You know, anything that, of course, somebody like Jack White does or, um, you know, a lot of the, the country records that like um, guys like Dave Cobb make and stuff, they're not. That has nothing to do with the grid, you know. That's just right. all pocket played on the floor. So the point is, is like you should still, you know, everyone should still be, um, you know, tr- trying to um, have that tool. What's really great is that there was an interview that um, that I was given that uh, I think it's one of the last MD interviews that that Jeff Percaro did, but. What he called it is his time feel, is what he he really was focusing on at this point again in, in his um, in his career, and that's really what we're talking about. Because the illusion of you know we're all human. There's no way for it to be perfect, you know. And it, but it's so much more about the illusion of it, and the, I find that it's more about the consistency and velocity is. I think, you know, drumming can, can kind of hit you the way that the sort of the Doppler effect can, can. And in terms of like, if you, even if you're playing dead in time, but every other backbeat is of a different velocity, well, it's going to feel like you are sucking. (laughs) Right. And, and you can, that there's actually, there's a lot of conviction. And this is to me is what I, what I've really learned from Bonham was it's really more in, in the internal clock and the velocity in which the stuff is played. Um, and, and that's really it. But that's what is the transcending part about those records, about the records that, that you know, Jeff Picaro played on, the records that Roger Hawkins played on. Oh, man. You know, um, you know um, that's what we're talking about. You know, that's, that's what's there. Um, uh, um, Bernard Purdy, um, you know, um, Rick Murata, it's really that it's like the interpretation of what a record should feel like. And that to me is a huge art form, regardless of what's going on in post. Um, because if you, if you take an average drummer and you hack the shit out of them, the end result is, is an average hack the shit out of drum parts. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, you know, um, so the point is, you know, like it, it's really important to still 
to try to hold true as much as possible to that time feel. Plus, that's the very thing that gives each drummer a different voice, you know? Um, and um, I would say a full uh, example of that would be Steve Jordan. You oh, know? wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, he can play, he can play, you know, just a two and four backbeat groove about 400 different ways. And I'm talking eight notes on the hi-hat, two and four on the snare, and one and three on the kick. But he'll lean it. He'll lean his eighth notes, um, and he'll displace his backbeat. And it's brilliant. And he, you, can, you can listen to a, you know, 20 different songs where he's literally playing the same part, but none of them feel the same because of those little teeny little incremental moves that he's making. And because uh, that's a guy who has studied tons of great rock and roll records um, and really paid attention to the character as opposed to any of what we might call the, the clean aspects of it. He's looking, he, yeah, he's looking to find that internal sort of the shuffle, the small amount of shuffle in even an eighth note crew, you know. Right. I mean, just go pick up the, you know, the Keith Richards solo stuff, the expensive mm-hmm. linos. I mean, if you listen to that, you just go, wow. I mean. Yeah. Uh, another, you know, who was another amazing player at that, too, who um, a lot of people don't know about is Charlie Drayton, too, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, Charlie's a, an incredible groove player. Um you know, and, and there was a good amount of time there, you know, that he and Steve would switch on and off between bass and drums. And, but that is that, that's that beauty of like, and those guys both have great facility and, and that's not what we're saying. It's like when you find so much expression in the most mundane part is to me, that is the real, real, um, that's what, really knocks me out you know that's that's the kind of thing of like dadgummit you know like why didn't i think of that or why you know (laughs) i want to learn how to lean something like that or you know uh and the and the beauty and the simplicity um you know even though you have all of this facility you know to be able to realize if i just lay this down in this way and hit a crash symbol at the top of, of these sections that's going to be plenty, you know, and um, I love that. And, and it was, you know, I can remember, I mean, yeah, of course I heard Phil Rudd play my whole life, but it wasn't until, you know, at a certain point in the eighties that I really started dissecting what he played and went, holy smokes, this is amazing. The guy is, um, I mean, he, he, it's insane. Just, the the level of um, the con- level of consistency in playing and the simplicity of those parts and how perfect they are, um, you know. Again, that's another example of of uh, of like that Jordan aspect. Now, of course, Phil Rudd doesn't have you know he only just plays in the same band, so you don't really get you don't get to hear him apply that in other areas like you do with Steve. You know, and Steve has had some. Um, a long career and a, and a lot of different varieties of music where he's doing that. But I think it's just in the, 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 the approach 
and the the economics in it and knowing the power of that you know Absolutely. Well, and you can't argue with the fact, you know, yeah, Phil Rudd probably isn't going to be on the Mount Rushmore of drummers at the end of the day, but how many millions of records has that drumming sold? You know, oh, or, t- or I, I tell me something that feels better than you shook me all night long. I totally like agree to, to me. To me, that's more of the thing than anything is like, you know, who played that better? Nobody. That's you know, right. Who, who would have Who would have done that? So, and it didn't exist before you were doing it too. That's the other thing. You know, it's like sometimes you know you you have to have just the you have to have the guts to go. Well, this is enough. You know, I don't. You know, look, it it it's carrying the song. I don't need to do any more than this. And you know, a lot of well placed uh, crash cymbals and. You know, I've I've stolen a lot from a lot of different players, but one specifically is that the idea of placing, you know, crashes on beat two or beat four on a chorus, just sort of the wind up phrases, you know. So those are all they're all placed with, um, you know, at the ends of vocal phrases, you know, um, those sort of those tie in hooks, you know, is, is what I'm trying to do on those, and um, you know, but that wasn't. I mean, that's just something that I noticed that Phil Rudd was doing. And then, you know, it's something that Mutt Lang carried on to the other records that he produced after working with ACDC. So that's just a great gag, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's not a drummer alive that didn't, you know, the, the first time they had a, a China cymbal hit it on two or four with their snare drum and go, wow, that's yeah. a great sound. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Yeah. But yeah. it's, again, it's one of those simple things, you know, that, but that is a, such a great tool though, you know? Um, so yeah, it is for sure. Well, it, Chris, you know, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I mean, I could sit and talk to you all day because you are just such a great student of the instrument and a, and a historian. And I mean, I, I think it's just been, you know, a great interview thus far, um, but I don't want to keep you too long because I, I know time is money in Nashville. But, you know, mm-hmm. your your list of credits is just insane. And, and I mentioned that in the intro, uh, you know, for our interview. But do you have any favorites that you've worked on? Did you have any, oh, my God, moments, uh, you know, when you walked into the, the studio knowing this is, you know, a, a Garth Brooks track or, or, you know, Kenny Rogers or, or, you know, any of these amazing artists that you've recorded with, did you have any, Oh my God moments? Oh, plenty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, um, shoot, uh, too many to, you know, to, uh, to recall really, you know, um, but, you know, I, what's interesting is one of the records that I'm most proud of is a record that a lot of people don't know, um, which is um, by an artist named uh, Owsley, O-W-S-L-E-Y. Uh, and uh, his first record just called Owsley is something I'm really, really proud of even after, you know, and it's we did it, um, gosh, I can't remember it was around 1998 or something, but, um, 
something I'm really, really proud of. Uh, and it's a good record to check out. It's, it's, there's a lot of, um, I don't know. It's, it's good. It's something I'm really proud of. Um, man, oh, I don't know. It's like, there's too, there's too many to, um, to mention. And I am terrible at recalling, you know, <laughs> well, situations. With but a, I, I do with yeah, a discography I, like yours, I can understand. <laughs> where, well, I'll say, I'll say like one thing, you know, in particular, I remember about, um, you know, like the song, uh, the Keith Urban song, Somebody Like You. I can remember when we were tracking it, it was like, man, this is really something. This is, you know, I can, and I'm terrible at predicting what would be a hit or wouldn't be, you know, but I can remember working on that and thinking, man, this is really different. Um, you know, because at the time, uh, the you know, the four on the floor thing hadn't been beaten to death like it is now, but, um, but I can, and, and so, you know, the, the things that we were doing on that track were like, Hey, this is really, um, I really think this is going to have some kind of an impact. I mean, I didn't, I had no idea it would be the, as big of a hit it would be again. Cause I want to say, I don't know that stuff very well. <laughs> a lot of things I think are going to be really huge aren't, and uh, and so I just stopped trying to make those predictions. Well, I, I hear you, and and I never try to do it because I like you. I'm always wrong on on what's going to take off and and what's yeah. not. But you know, a lot of the guys that I've talked to that have been touring drummers with country artists have said, you know, in Nashville, it's typically a session guy that goes in and records with my band or my artist, and then I have to learn those parts. So I'm kind of curious with the Keith Urban gig, given that you're his musical director and you tour with Keith quite a bit, um, you know, do you ever want to kick yourself as the live Chris McHugh? Do you ever want to kick the session Chris McHugh and go, why did you play it this way? This is hard to do every night. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But I mean, back when I was touring, I stopped touring with Keith in 2014. Um, and I've just been doing sessions since, but, oh yeah, no, there would be a few songs. It was like, God, why did you do this? Um, <laughs> you know, but other things, um, actually started to make more sense in playing them live. You know, like you do become a little bit more economical or you can meet, you can make, more of a meal out of a certain part too that you really didn't get to explore that much in the studio um and so that's that's a really fun thing too and as far as you know playing live i mean keith um uh is somebody uh who really loves to play live like and by the you know i mean he is uh somebody who will take more musical chances than your average person and and he is truly an amazing uh, guitar player and really real high energy. And um, and the, and I should say too, the the drummer who is um, is out with Keith now, Seth Roush, is a really great player too. He's um, his stylistically, he's different than me, but I think people are really missing out by not um, really checking out what what he can do. Um, 
he's a wonderful player and a great guy too. And uh, the point of all of this is that Keith's shows are, are quite a bit different than what people might imagine in the normal kind of country uh, genre. You know, it's, uh, it's much more energetic than that. And, uh, and I'd use this as just as a way to explain that, you know, there were certain things that he really didn't care about trying to emulate like the record. It was more about, okay, what can we do with this live? And so that was always really fun too, was to take, you know, songs that I had done in the studio and to just, to try to like, just completely walk away from that and do something different um, to facilitate what he was wanting at the time. So that's a really interesting thing too, you know, and then you would, you get to the place too where certain songs you're just tired of, but you know that people want to hear. So it's like, what can we do to sort of add something new to this, but not break down the actual integrity of the song, you know? And, and sometimes those are real subtle adjustments and sometimes they're massive, you know? Yeah. And, um, so, but, um, you know, that's, that's the, um, the other thing too, that, that you, you know, it's a bit boring, I think, to just play it exactly like the record, you know, I think when you're on tour and you're, you're supporting a new rec, a new album and people haven't heard the songs, that might be a time to be a bit more, you know, tied to, the studio version, but once you kind of move on from that, you know, you can make it, make it your own thing. You know, I was just watching the Leonard Skinner documentary uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was interesting that, you know, the original composition of Freebird didn't have all of those long solos in it. There was like one. And then as they got on tour and they played it, the fans were going crazy. And so they kept adding those solo sections to, to where, you know, became what it was all the way down to the, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the breakdown solo bit, you know, uh, and, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And that's the kind of thing, you know, that you can, you can pull together live that it took years for them to develop that. It's not something you would have done in the studio. Oh, and so Absolutely. I love that part of it too. Yeah, I love that part of it too. Yeah, well, and, and you know, I stole a great quote from you know the masterful Warren Haynes. He said, "We've mm-hmm. we've done this backwards for fifty years. We go in and record these brand new songs, and then we spend a year out on the road figuring out how to play them." <laughs> yeah. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of truth to that. That's also really the power of you know of uh, Zeppelin one and two, you know, because, um, basically Zeppelin one was what they had been playing live for, for, uh, you know, I'm not sure how many months it was, but I think it was at least, you know, it was like three to six months as the new Yardbirds or whatever. So when they went in the record, you know, I think that record was done within like three days or something. Um, <laughs> I know that the total cost of that record of Let's Up of One was like twelve hundred and fifty pounds, I think, including the cover art. <laughs> so they were basically all they did was play their live set, right? You know, and so that's why it has so much incredible power to it and uh, confidence, and you know, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's the first time we're hearing 
it's a 19 year old John Bonham, you know, and, and it is just, um, friggin' ferocious, man, you know, and, but that, that's what comes with that, knowing what you're going to play. You know, and too, that, that, that's the brilliance too of, of, um, of the Rush records as well, as well. You know, a lot of people don't know that Neil would rehearse for months what he was going to play on those records. And, and they would, you know, when they go in and do the tracks, that was a, that didn't last that long. It was all, it was all done on the front end, but he didn't take it lightly. Like, I mean, he spent months on that stuff, but that's why those parts all mean what they mean, you know, and that, and that's why he was so dedicated to playing them exactly how he recorded them too. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy that. And I love that quote. And I think it, it really has a lot of wisdom in it, you know? Yeah, yeah it, it absolutely does. And, you know, I, it, it amazes me, you know, I, and I've done enough studio work to know that, you know, time is money and, and you got to get it done but for guys of your caliber to go into the studio and, and you've probably heard maybe a rough demo of the song or, or maybe not, but you you get two or three passes to make this timeless music. And mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've just you've drummed on records that have just sold millions upon millions of copies. Um, I it, it just befuddles me that under that much pressure, you can just go in and, and lay it down and it becomes, you know, a signature part of the song. It just, you know, kudos to you is, is all I can say. Well, thank I mean, I appreciate it. I was going to say though too, but that's the reason why, like, you know, one of the thing, I, one of the things that I find very important is to stay, um, is to be aware of how other people are doing it. Like, you know, and that, that, and that's why it's important to listen to, um, anyone who's getting a lot of work. Like even, you know, whether you love what they do or hate what they do musically, the thing is, is to listen to why, you know, um, you know, for example, somebody like Jeff Picaro, why should we care about Jeff Picaro? Well, because he played on a million different records over the span of, you know, the, um, three decades, what was it about him? What was it about his playing and his sounds, you know, his parts that people wanted it that, you know, that frequently. And so now, you know, that, that's, um, you know, um, I'm always wanting to know, um, you know, what Matt Chamberlain's up to, what Aaron Sterling's up to, what Shannon Forrest is up to, um, you know, what, what everyone is up to, to hear how, you know, these guys are approaching, um, their sessions, you know, and, and what they're coming up with. And it's like, at a certain point, you know, you really have to be, um, you really have to be comfortable with, the, you know, your, your own, uh, limitations, but that's how you learn, you know? And that's what I love about listening to, to other players that are playing on records. It's like, um, you always pick up something great. There's a reason why those guys that I just mentioned get hired, um, as often as they do. 
And I think, you know, it would be foolish for anyone, um, especially because long short of it, man, is I'm just in the service industry. I'm, I'm really there to, to, um, you know, I have a certain, uh, like baseline that I'm operating from that is acceptable to me. And, but beyond that, I really just, you know, if they are needing me to change a part or to do it differently or to look for a different part, play more, play less, you know, that's really, it's really up to the artist and the producer. And, um, you know, and I think when you keep that, I think you need to be really bullheaded about being great at playing drums and learning, you know, um, how to just negotiate yourself in musical situations, you know. Um, but other than that, the rest, you, you're just open. You're just open for whatever might be needed and whatever is asked of you, you know. And that's really it. And those wise words, you know, I think, I think it was the, the great Rod Morgenstein that said to me, the studio is no place for an ego. (laughs) No, it really, it really isn't. I mean, you, you need to have enough of a, you need to have enough pride in taking the job seriously before you get there. You know, like, um, you know, any, any hiccups that you have in your playing, you know, you really got to suss those out and you have to police yourself. But once you're in the room with other people, you're not working for yourself, you know. You're, you're, you're working for everyone else. And, uh, and you're a problem solver, you know. That's really the thing is a lot of uh, sessions are really about, um, you know, there's a problem. We need to have a song recorded, um, you know, and, and uh, the basic groove of it and, and, you know, down to the tempo and, you know, how you're going to get in and out of certain sections and how you're going to make the chorus do what it needs to do are the problems that need to be solved, you know, and, and you need to have enough, um, you know, solutions and you come in with the solutions, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, Chris, um, I have just absolutely monopolized your afternoon today. Uh, but one of the traditions that we have here on the drum shuffle, and I think the, the entire interview could be categorized as this, but we always ask our professional guests for a good piece of advice for, for other drummers, other musicians, and it can really be anything you want to touch on. But give us a good piece of advice to, to take out there with us. Um, I think to be, um, to be really self-aware in your own playing, which is if you, if you want to, um, to know, you know, what your playing sounds and feels like in the most basic way, record yourself, you can do it on your phone and you can, you can do that simultaneously while, you know, playing to, um, playing to something. Uh, and, and you'll learn just by listening to yourself and hearing your own inconsistencies or what you need to, to work on. And, and, um, you know, and to be brutally honest with yourself, cause that's how you learn and that's how you improve, you know? Um, and, and when you are doing that to recognize that, you know, practice is the way that you get better at something. And, and to be connected to, you know, it's like honesty 
and um, you know, self-awareness in your playing uh, combined with the desire to get better and to know that practicing makes you better is really what this thing is about, you know, and that's, that's a lifelong thing as a musician. Yeah, man. Wise, wise words from Chris McHugh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you can find Chris on his website. It is chrismchugh.com. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking some time to come on the drum shuffle, man. I, we really appreciate it. I think this has been a just a fantastic uh, chat and, and hang talking drums with one of the masters of the Nashville studio scene. Thanks so much. You're welcome here anytime, brother. You got it, man. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. All right. See ya. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode 47 of the Drum Shuffle. And of course, uh, you know, this episode is uh, publishing and going to air for the first time on December 15th. Uh, and as I've mentioned in previous uh, episodes, be taking a couple of weeks off coming up here for the holidays. So we're not going to have traditional interview episodes on December 22nd and December 29th. Uh, I will be putting out some content on those dates just because I don't want you to forget about our little show. Uh, but they will not be traditional interviews. Our next traditional interview episode will be uh, published on January 5th, and it's going to be one to remember. Uh, we will be joined by a legendary drummer by the name of Marco Miniman. That is correct. We managed to get one of the current uh, day drum gods to come on the show so we'll be starting off 2019 with a bang. I want to take a minute to thank Chris McHugh for his time. We really do appreciate him uh, coming on. He's very, very busy. So that was great. Uh, also wanted to remind everybody that the Nashville Drummers Jam 13 is coming up here on December 17th, Monday night. Uh, I will be down in Nashville for that show hanging out with some drummers backstage. So hopefully we'll have some content uh, around Nashville Drummers Jam uh, on the 22nd and the 29th for you to enjoy. I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen into the show. You're not going to want to miss what we have coming up. I promise you that. We love hearing from you throughout the week. Our email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Please send us an email. We do respond to every single one of those that we receive. Uh, of course, our web address is the drumshuffle.com, and you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Thank you so much for listening. We cannot do anything without every single one of you tuning in week in and week out. We really do appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Again, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. I hope everybody has a fantastic couple of weeks. Uh, and we'll be back with a traditional episode on January 5th. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.